0: Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Kortz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we will be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. All right, welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey. Dr. Johnson, good afternoon and happy Friday. Hey, it's good to be here, how are you? I'm doing very well, busy but busy, busy but well. So we'll get right into it. Today we're discussing the effects of the pandemic on neurosurgery practice uh, and education and the lessons that we've learned along the way for training uh, medical students and residents uh, in the future. We'll discuss this year's residency application and interview cycle uh, and how medical students can do well with limited in-person sub-internship and interview opportunities this next year uh, and even in the future. Dr. Nader Dadele is the prime candidate to help us do that and we're so happy to have him on. Um, He is an associate professor of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine where he serves as the neurosurgery residency program director and is also the director of the Chiari and Craniovertebral Junction Surgery Program. Uh, He also previously completed a fellowship in minimally invasive spine surgery at Northwestern. Prior, he completed his residency training in an adult deformity fellowship at the University of Iowa, uh, and he also serves as the faculty director of spine education for MSNTC and is the co-host of the Virtual Global Spine Conference. Dr. Dadale, so happy to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. It's an honor. Thank you. So, Dr. Johnson, to set up our discussion today at Baylor and more broadly, especially through your uh, expertise and experience in the YNC, uh, how has, just to give us a, a framework for how the pandemic, uh, we're over about a year out now, um, has affected your practice and your medical students and residents and their training. Uh, and then we'll, we'll contrast that with uh, what Dr. Dadale, his experience has been.
1: Yeah, no, my pleasure. So I believe the experience of the pandemic is somewhat location-specific um, or is certainly strongly influenced by that. Um, and location meaning the city, the state, the country, um, and even to some degree, the institutions within the same city can handle things differently. I can give you a little bit of the overview of what what we experienced here and, and just kind of give a flavor that way. So, I, I mean, back in March when there was so much Going on in New York and the Northeast, and obviously in Italy a little bit before that, China before that. We didn't have a whole lot of cases in Houston. Um, that said, we began to see some of our early cases in March, and there's a big um, event here called the rodeo. It's like a multi multi-week event with concerts and, you know, obviously a rodeo and, and it's, it's anything you could imagine that would be happening in Texas uh, on a large scale, uh, t- you know, takes up several stadiums and the whole, like, so one of the first local cases actually came up a- at the rodeo and someone who was working there. And, um, and that was the first time that it really impacted us locally. Uh, this person became sick at home and then ultimately had a positive test. And the second portion of the rodeo was actually shut down and stopped. Um, you know, for concern of, of massive a super spreader event, so to speak, uh, potentially happening there. And and but other than that, uh, it was you know everyone began wearing, s- slowing down uh, a lot of a lot of things in the city. But it otherwise kept going pretty pretty close to normally. Um, you know, there was a pretty big pause in um, in cases that were non-essential and clinic that was non-essential for a little bit in late March, early April. And it was mainly in my sense, trying to get a grasp on PPE and how this was spreading and seeing how the numbers look locally. And then we began seeing after several weeks of kind of walking up on PPE and getting processes in place, we thought were safe, um, kind of in our hospital systems, we began to kind of see more patients in clinic and do more surgeries. Uh, and that went on through May. And then in June, locally, we had uh, like an even into July and somewhat into August had a big spike uh, where the ICUs began to fill up here, several months behind places like New York, and uh, even had several bouts where we had to um, halt elective surgeries due to, you know, just the different rules they had in Texas regarding how many beds you had to have available for COVID patients. And so that peak, so to speak, waned, and uh, and in the fall, we began doing not only a few weeks of really limiting elective cases that I recall and the fall, we began to go back to more normal again with all the, you know, mask wearing and safety. And then, um, and then over the holidays, it became, you know, a lot of numbers again. And although we didn't, some of the hospitals I work at, um, or I'm aware of did, slow down elective surgeries due to ICU bed capacity issues. Some did not, got close, et cetera. But by this time we had a good process in place for COVID testing, pre-procedure and these types of things. Um, So that's kind of just how this went. So I I guess you can tackle this from a different perspective is one is my practice. So this, my practice kind of ebbed and flowed along with my elective practice, ebbed and flowed along with these events where ICU capacity became tighter you could do less elective cases, or they had to be kind of more urgent elective, you know. And that that kind of came and went several times throughout this process. Now, our, the emergencies continued to happen, and they were to some varying degree, you know, impacted by COVID. It particularly, you know, COVID seems to have, in a small subset of people, make people prone to coagulation disorders, and that would lead to some very bizarre stroke cases. Uh, which I do larger occlusions and endovascular stroke in my practice. So saw a lot of those and a lot of patients you didn't realize till after the procedure <laughs> had COVID and, and, you know, gowning oneself up in a kind of ET style spacesuit isn't the most practical thing in an emergency stroke. So everybody just kind of wears N95 masks and tries to get through it. As far as how it impacted the residents. I mean, I think similarly in that initial period where everything kind of slowed way down until we got our grasp around PPE and processes, they, uh, had a small period of time where they were, you know, on a skeleton crew. This is in March, April. And a lot of them were from home um, as were a lot of faculty. Uh, and then once the processes got in place and everyone agreed upon like a relatively safe way of going back to, to work, um, then they came back and have been kind of full steam ever since.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. And we're, we're so glad that you've stayed healthy through this whole process so that we, you can still be my co-host. Um,
1: <laughs> Cause the shots in the shots in the arm, uh, you know, yeah. around Christmas time and then the rest is history. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, I, I always say we should give the entire pharmaceutical industry a Nobel prize for, <laughs> for, for those, those uh, vaccines being done so quickly. And so, so well. I don't
0: know. I felt, I didn't feel very good after my second one. I, I don't know if they deserve it. Um, yeah, mine, went, mine went fine, <laughs> and regardless, we're all still here. Yeah, so. I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Doctor Dottelay, I'd like to take a half step back and uh, just just briefly describe your process to neurosurgery. Why? Because you're as you said offline, you're you're fascinated with the upper the upper parts of the spine, and and your practice just a little bit. I would love to hear you know why why you came to neurosurgery, why you got into spine, and why are you sitting before us today, and and we'd just love to hear your story a little bit.
2: Absolutely, and again, thank you for the opportunity. So I, you know, I went to undergrad and med school at the American University of Beirut. So I'm an international medical graduate. So and then, at that time, you know, during undergrad, I bo- majored in biology. I um, I, I took a a, a a course in neurosciences, and I loved it. Uh, I remember, you know, the first chapter was modern neuroscience and how that started with uh, uh, Ramon y Cajal, a neuroscientist from uh, Spain. And I, it just was just fascinating, the neuroanatomy, the neurophysiology, which carried on to med school. Now, I always wanted to do something within neuroscience. Initially, neur- neurology was was on the list. But then when I did a rotation as a third-year medical student, I, uh, I was really influenced. And, and the person who who I give credit to influencing me in choosing neurosurgery as a specialty, is Dr. Ali Alaraj, who is a uh, vascular neurosurgeon currently working at uh, UIC. He does uh, open and endovascular. And so he's he he influenced me tremendously uh, towards this fascinating field. He was a chief resident at that time at the American University of Beirut, Department of Neurosurgery, and I was a third-year medical student. And I, beyond the selective time that I spent with him, I, I just kept showing up to his office and and you know, following him around during rounds and his stamina, his charisma, his work ethic. And uh, the case mix and the pathologies that uh, that uh, we treat as neurosurgeons really fascinated me at that time. I said, that's what I wanted to do because I saw, thought that the uh, it's pretty intense. The outcomes are excellent uh, when you do a good job with these patients and make the correct diagnosis and uh, do the right thing for them. And it's pretty rewarding. And I like the stress and the intensity that comes with it. So that's what I wanted to do that. And then I trained at the University of Iowa. Uh, initially, I wanted to go into um, do something either within epilepsy or functional, but then, you know, everyone gets gets influenced by a mentor. And my mentor was Patrick Hitchin. He's a spine surgeon and got to work in his biomechanics lab. And I love, you know, the spine biomechanics aspect of it and that time also minimal invasive spine surgery started to become more popular and i learned a lot of these techniques from him and i just love the pathology the um anatomy the localizing where the pain is coming from or where the deficit is coming from and addressing it i, I love that about spine so I, I, that's why i wanted to pursue further training in it and did a fellowship with rick fessler richard fessler who is another mentor of mine and also tyler kosky uh, learned from both and i stayed on faculty at northwestern uh, my practice is 100 spine right now and I, I like treating my patients and, um, and and do my best to give them the best outcome possible.
0: That's great. It's it's uh, it's a good sign when you use the word love as mon- as many times as you did. <laughs> so, how for especially you know as your as your role as a PD, um, how, you know, Doctor Johnson talked about the ebb and flow. How how did you assess the impact of the last year on your residency on your residence, uh, and med students, and and um, what challenges did you guys have to overcome? Uh, and then, what did you, what lessons did you learn for the future um, as we move, hopefully, beyond the pandemic as soon as possible?
2: You know, I mean, the pandemic happened so fast, and uh, we didn't have previous experience from of how to address these issues that you uh, mentioned and we'll also talk about them a little bit. So, you know, we, we had to come up with plans uh, on the fly and uh, uh, you know, initially when when the pandemic started, the questions were existential, like beyond training and beyond it's like, are we going to survive this? I mean, there were so many unknowns and you listen to horror stories and, you're on CNN eight hours a day, so the the mindset then it's different than than now. We know much more about the virus, and uh, we know that there are things that if we do, we'll you know be able to survive and, and do well. You know, basic things, hand washing, using PPEs, and and then now the vaccine. But back then, you know, we started with an existential question. You know, we started talking like. Should, should we write a will? I mean, what should I, like, think, think about my family. I mean, what if I get the virus and I don't survive because of these horror stories? But then, thankfully, fast forward, that never happened. I mean, I mean it happened, but but to a lesser degree uh, than what we anticipated. Now, the you know, the pandemic impacted us in so many different ways. From a patient perspective, you know, we think about of, of our patients and, we're always uh, patients, uh, proponents, and I want the best for my patient. My patient needs to get the best care possible. We never thought of of the common good or, you know, from a u- utilitarian uh, perspective. It's like, my patient comes first. You know, it doesn't matter. We had to change that mindset. We started thinking about, like, society as a whole, you know, COVID patients. You know, we need to stop elective surgery, which is very hard. You know, elective surgery, basically pac- what, what that does even mean, patient has neurogenical educations or, uh, significant morbidity because of that, they can't function. But that's considered elective surgery. We had to stop that. Patients with myelopathy, urgent surgeries. We had to stop the, those too. We just availed ourselves. We availed ourselves towards, emergent surgeons. So from that was a bit of a struggle, obviously. But um, we had to do what's right. Uh, you know, accommodate patients with COVID with uh, surge capacity, at an institutional level. And that was in Chicago here in Illinois, was in the, the first wave was in uh, March. Uh, we stopped uh, clinical operations in terms of elective surgeries, uh, March 17th. And this carried on until May 1st, approximately, or beginning of May, where we started to com- book more elective surgeries and even address urgent uh, situations. So that's from a clinical perspective, You know, utilitarianism versus, and common good versus my patients, my patients need the best care, I'm a patient proponent. Right now we're society proponents. We had to save PPEs. We need to leave beds open for potentially sicker patients, and uh, so that was that was definitely a, a challenge. Now, from a programmatic standpoint, that was another challenge too because a lot of what we do in terms of teaching is applied neurosurgery. Like you need it's it's never theoretical. You know, it's right. you need to learn by uh, active patient care and acquiring surgical skills. So, you do that in the operating room, in clinic, on the wards, in the ICU. That has to, that had to abruptly change. Right. So, and that definitely impacted, you know, across the board, across the board and impacted resident education. However, we, we had to capitalize on the extra time we had by sh- after shutting down clinical operations. You know, we also wanted to achieve two things, keep our crew healthy in terms of faculty and residents, and then keep our residents educated to the best possible way we can given that given the challenges with with no clinic time no elective cases going on especially in spine cranial came next and then definitely vascular most of uh, the vascular emergencies continued to happen because there's no way around around that so spine specifically and then tumors next uh, were impacted significantly so the challenges that remained were like okay self preservation we ran on a uh, skeleton crew of residents we altered our way of seeing patients and consults. so you know if a patient is covid positive and they have a trivial pathology not trivial not to belittle it but like let's say compression fracture that's stable you certainly don't have to see that patient face to face you know we we had, a, we had to also provide them with ppe's independently the department purchased ppe's because these were scarce as well, but uh, our hospital in general did a good job with that, actually, thankfully, and credit to the leadership here. And the, So self-preservation and then continued education. What the uptick was significantly with virtual education, it went from zero to like 100%, all our educational opportunities became virtual. We started also to looking at other uh, virtual opportunities of education through you know webinars, through the CNS, and uh, through different institutions. So there was a significant uptick with that, and we encourage our residents to capitalize on the extra time that they had in terms of doing more research and uh, doing more uh, opportunities to get just better as human beings and, and and career development. I had to meet with them a lot, and I wanted to do that because you know with an abrupt uh, lack of personal interaction with the residents, I had to. Uh, definitely speak with them all you know at least a couple of times a week on zoom or on the phone give them update on what's happening send them emails every day almost during the peak time of pandemic every single day i would send them an email about the numbers at the hospital and the and then and then try to as much as i can to keep the morale high because you need to make sure that you know keep the morale high because that that that's the that's, that's the that's the essence of everything if one is motivated and their morale is good, then they'll they'll um, uh, do a good job personally and uh, also as individuals who take care of patients. So a lot of impact from the pandemic, but there's a lot of opportunities here and a lot of lessons learned. The lessons that we learned as human beings, you got to adapt. You got to adapt fast. And this is something that uh, as neurosurgeons, we, we have, I think, the skills to do that because a lot of the decisions we make is on the fly. We use sometimes uh, – we don't have sometimes – too much time to think about what to do next. We you gotta right take the right uh, make the right choice, make the right decision on the fly. Use some heuristics, some previous experience, and you need to move forward. What helped too was also communicating with other programs and uh, through national societies, also indi- individually. You know, I reach out to other program directors and see how they did it. And as Dr. Jeremiah uh, Johnson said here, that you know the pandemic affected different parts of the countries at different times, so people. Who had earlier experience with the pandemic peak during the first wave definitely shared their experience with with uh, with with other uh, locations. Uh, So yeah, adaptability is the main is the main lesson. You gotta adapt. You gotta act fast. You need to be positive.
0: So for med students who are interested in neurosurgery and are maybe in their first, second, third years who are transitioning to eventually applying. You you talked a little about like personal reflection and you know facing your more own mortality and those sorts of things. Do you feel like that's something that med students should be doing? You know, let's say five years from now, pandemic is mostly in our rearview mirror and we're we're back to status quo. If if hopefully, um, is that something that we should look for in our candidates more? Like med students should be fostering that idea. You know, thinking more introspectively and deeply about um you know why they're where they are and you know trying to take the next step because i think we get so caught up in the rat race where it's like you know what's the next thing okay step one then step two then you get your residency spot and then you're taking your written boards and then you're in your research year it's like it's always very like the next step but i think this this year as all the challenges that it's um obviously shown us is the opportunity to take a look inward. And and I'm wondering if that's something that you want to elaborate a little bit more on for um, students who are younger and coming into this profession to think about some of these qualities that we're looking for uh, in future neurosurgeons.
2: That's that's uh, an excellent question. Now, I think just to take a step back, I think the beauty of our specialty as physicians in general, and then neurosurgeons specific, is the is that it, it's planned right like there like i like that i like that about you know it's 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 not it's known what you need to do next and it's predictable and now there's almost a playbook on how to get into this field and i love that about our specialty about medicine in general you undergrad then you go to med school and what's next residency what's next fellowship potential what's next a job so that's that predictability uh, is is excellent now uh, now at that at the same time you always want to be also well rounded in terms of having a purpose in life, you know, you need to say, okay, what would make me happy? What's my purpose? And and work towards it. And uh, and that's one thing. You don't have to think about your own mortality. I mean, you know, that's nothing. Like, you know, I, I'm a positive thought person. I think if you think about that, you know, and you know, grim thoughts and and it's they're not necessary because you can't change too much about it. To be honest, you just you want to think of your plan. Be positive and execute, execute and achieve your goals. That would make you happy. Everyone' goals are different. Everyone's happiness, what makes one happy, is is different. And I think you gotta enjoy the process, not the end result necessarily. You gotta enjoy the process, every bit of it, especially if it's challenging. So uh, they, I think I think we have extra time, obviously, start reflecting. Uh, but you've, you know, but some, but most of us don't have too much time, and you know, you need to kind of check the boxes and uh, try to do. The best you can with everything you do, you know, take, spend time with the family, uh, do your research, take care of your patients, educate the residents, and and that's good. It's good to be busy because it kind of sometimes uh, and 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 in situations where it's um, a bit challenging keeps you busy and. Doesn't give you that extra time where you're thinking you have negative thoughts. What I was inspired by our residents and our medical students, to be honest, because they stayed focused on the game. They stayed really uh, engaged in uh, in different things, you know, um, research, self-education, uh, you know, still taking care of patients. And and um, and I said, man, so they're not so much consumed with the pandemic as much as I am. and uh, and I learned that from them. It's like, man, look at these. They're young and uh, energetic, and uh, and they're super positive. So that that brought my morale up. <laughs> so, so morale uh, matters <laughs> absolutely. So it's like, man, that, that's that's good. So so I think uh, staying focused on the game and having a purpose and achieving it, and then things that you can't control, things you can control, you don't want to think about. You think about things that you can control in life. I think in general. So I don't look for for like I don't see like thinking about ones. On mortality, I don't, I don't think that's a prerequisite in in in, in uh, joining the field of medicine or neurosurgery. That like, I think
0: uh, we're all so about wisdom here, Doctor Donald. So yeah. <laughs> thank you for, for thank you for uh, doing that.
2: <laughs> sure thing.
0: <laughs> so, Doctor Johnson, um, talking about virtual education, the, you know, obviously that's that's how we're doing this podcast. It's how MSNTC works. It's how you know the YNC does their webinars, the virtual global sp- the uh, spine conference. Um, I know Dr. Bendock does his Circle of Willis thing, and the CNS, and all these play, all these are organizations are looking at improving the virtual education opportunities. How do you think this will continue going forward um, once things are able to open back up for in person opportunities?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think the online virtual learning and communication <laughs> it would just happen to be perfectly positioned the pandemic and Zoom's availability, right? Uh, you know, we probably would have done something similar with some other platforms, but Zoom is a really excellent platform that happened to be available at the right time, right? It's a little um, too convenient, probably. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, and it really it really helped a lot because the functionality of it um, specifically um, is really excellent for what we needed to use it for, which is webinars and communicating at, on large scale with a seamless way of doing it. And I hold no stock in Zoom, FYI. But that said, I think that that gave us the opportunity to make a real positive leap forward in education in many realms, including neurosurgery during the pandemic. I mean, everyone sat down and focused on communicating and educating online. And, and, and with video, it's of course much better and, and more rich than just with audio or uh, alone if you know video wasn't available. So I think, I think that was one of the real silver linings of this entire process in my mind, now looking kind of back as we are kind of slowly hoping getting towards the end of the pandemic. So I think that this is a real, real renaissance of online virtual learning. Many groups, as you outlined within nurse surgery, have taken advantage of it, if not almost all of them. I think it's almost like been a democratization of, of information, which I know is kind of what you and I have talked about, about the podcast and as well as in our webinar, which is to allow the free flow of information and wisdom from multiple generations of people on our field um, to the ones below them and, um, and kind of make up for some of the gaps that may exist where people have variability and mentorship and availability of that, uh, of these resources. So I think online education and virtual education obviously boomed in the pandemic. And I, I expect it to continue to play a very prominent role for the reasons I previously stated going forward. I do think in-person education will return and will still be important, particularly hands-on type of courses. And uh, there's no substitute for meeting people in person and networking. And so I think that will happen as well. But I, I think there's always going to be a role for not having to fly across the country to learn something. I, I think that will be one of the great benefits to not only our field, but probably many others um, from having all these online resources boom during the pandemic.
0: How about you, Dr. Dadale? I know with the virtual Global Spine Conference um, and MSNTC, you get... Uh, also, a, a unique perspective. I'm curious what your thoughts are.
2: I Absolutely. Along the same lines, uh, You know, virtual learning is here to stay. Like telemedicine is here to stay. And in general, you always you, want, you would love to have options. Like optionality to human beings is important. Like You need to have options. You need to have options for patients to see you in person or at least connect with you through telemedicine. Same thing in terms of learning. The more options you have, the better. Uh, virtual learning is here to stay. Definitely would not replace in person, but is here to stay. It connects people from across the globe. I, 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 I uh, through these opportunities as you mentioned, uh, virtual global spine and the endeavor that we're doing with you, the uh, training camp. You, we, we, I connected with a lot of my colleagues from across the globe that I didn't know, and uh, and, and that was definitely one of the major advent I like to say advantage of pandemic, but definitely that was silver lining, and it's here to stay. And I think uh, it's convenient, usually, if it's a podcast or it's a webinar for an hour. You don't get uh, Zoom Zoom fatigue or anything like that. So it's efficient. And you can go always back to it and um, and watch it again, uh, you know, if it's stored online. So it's definitely a, a platform of education is that's here to stay. And we should keep at it. Like we should not, we, to, you know, I love the word that Dr. Johnson mentioned, renaissance of 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 virtual learning, it's true. It's a true renaissance. It existed before, but it's definitely rebirth, and it's here to stay. I'm a very I'm a proponent of it, and uh, we're lucky, as uh, Dr. Johnson mentioned yourself, that we had the capability of doing that in 2020 uh, with the technology. Like uh, I can't imagine that, let's say the pandemic happened ten years ago, what would we have done? It really salvaged a lot of the. Um, uh, uh, n- negative impacts of the pandemic on education. It's really helped a lot with, 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 with learning, uh, uh, continued learning and for residents and medical students. It's been a challenging year for, for medical students because of, you know, like, you know, you're counting on your sub I to, to, uh, to match in a, in a, in a, in a training program that you've seen. And that, uh, that, that was a major challenge, but it was overcome. And there will be, challenges down the road that we will overcome. So that's, that's a major learning experience, you know, but like at the end of the day, you know, virtual learning, telemedicine are here to stay for sure. So Dr. Johnson said that
0: it's good that we don't have to fly across the country to do something. And obviously the next wave of, um, sub eyes and interview season that we just finished, (laughs) Uh, an application season, but it's, I'm sure, you know, it's already underway for the next year. Um, and so, D- Dr. Dottoli and Dr. Johnson, the lessons that you both learned um, through this, you know, basically completely online uh, application season, um, I'd love to sit on this for a little bit and just get your thoughts and how students should maximize this next year uh, and going forward, because there may be things, like you said, that that continue, whether it's virtual interviews or, or, or otherwise. So, to start... <laughs> You said, you know, Dr. Dottoli, that you want to match at a program that you've seen and or that, you know, at least, you know, that you and you feel comfortable with um, a lot of trainees are happy just to match anywhere. But um, in this virtual environment over the last, uh, you know, six months to a year where we've done this all virtual, how do you do you how, how do you think it went? Um, I know I'm sure we, you guys overcome a lot of challenges with interviewing applicants via Zoom and only having the one sub I how do you think it went? What do you want to keep moving forward? And what things do you feel like need to be still addressed um, for future application cycles?
2: Briefly, I mean, I think uh, given all the challenges and uh, the lack of sub-internship, it went overall well, you know, to be honest, that's at least uh, for our program, and I'm sure programs across the country, they're very happy with who they match. We're really thrilled of who we matched here, uh, the three uh, very talented medical students. Now, in terms of an applicant matching a neurosurgery program. We here assume a holistic approach. So we look. We don't look at only board scores or only research. You know, and we weigh in multiple things. Multiple things like board scores, performance, in medical school research experience, and also recommendation letters. And if you wanna see, if you wanna, the way we think about it. Okay, what weighs the most? What weighs the most for an applicant to get an interview is actually the recommendation letters. Like these, we value the most. Because we're a small community, everyone knows who's who, and you know there are, you know, we, we trust each other, and and, and we want a excellent, talented uh, medical students to our to our neurosurgery community. So the application process to get a, to get to an interview was impacted by the fact of we didn't have the opportunity to have a lot of sub We have our, we had our internal sub but but that was about it. So we really heavily counted on the letters of recommendation. To maximize one's chances down the line in terms of matching in a program, you gotta you gotta get good letters of recommendation through any opportunity you have. Like if you're doing your home program, one or two months upcoming. I think we're having I think it's gonna be one one away as far as I know, one away rotation, and then uh, one or two rotations at the home programs. So you gotta max like you gotta do your best to get the best uh, recommendation letter. And I'll get to that on how to get that. And it's the basics everyone talked about it, but we'll reiterate. Will reiterate what's what's been said in, in previous podcasts because I listen to a lot of your podcasts and they're fantastic. Thank so you. I think, <laughs> yeah, 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 you're welcome. And uh, yeah, the the application uh, process and the uh, this season, given all these unknown variables, went well uh, due to the you know way we adapted and uh, uh, I think the SNS uh, came forth with a good pro- like I have like a guidelines for programs so that you know and for medical students and. Everyone was on the same page and uh, they did a good job with, with the white paper and with the recommendations of how to make it a fair process as much as possible. At the same time, uh, make it as safe as possible for, uh, for not requiring uh, medical students to travel across the United States to, to do their sub so that it would be a fair process, everyone should do the same. So that, that, that was a good thing that they executed in a timely fashion.
0: I think, I mean, I, I was certainly encouraged by the way organized neurosurgery came together. I mean, it was really left up to, I mean, I know they had the broad coalition across the board had recommendations, but I mean, every specialty is different um, in terms of the things that you look for and the qualities that you look for. And so I, I was certainly encouraged by everything that SNS did and um, uh, different faculty did in terms of mentoring students through the process um, and shout out to all my friends who, just recently matched. Um, it's a, a wonderful feeling. I can imagine. Um, so, Doctor Johnson, I, I mean, I, I'd be curious what you think as well. I mean, it, it's a lot of still unknowns. Um, I know that the SNS is still trying to work through some of what's going to happen this next year. What things can we take going forward, even even from five, 10 years from now? Um, what what things through this process do you think is going uh, important for us to to capture that
1: opportunity um, to improve down the road? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I wanted to second what dr donnelly said about being impressed with how organized neurosurgery and subsequently all the programs kind of fell in line very quickly with a good plan i think about how to handle the pandemic and interviews um i think it went really smoothly and so you know kudos to the sns and uh, i'll go ahead and say say that my uh My old chief resident and good friend, Stacey Wolf, who chairs the medical student committee, uh, along with many others, in did did really great work on that. Um, And so congratulations to them and everyone else who who came together for that. Um, Going forward, uh, I do think that we have now gone through an interview cycle without in-person interviews, and it seems to have gone pretty well. I do think it may have put certain people at disadvantages. I, you know, always concerned about those folks who don't have home programs, who really need these exposures to um, get good letters. Um, so, uh, this is all just my own speculation and opinion, obviously. But I would imagine that one thing that we very well could continue to integrate into the interview process is some degree of virtual interviews. So, the question is going to be how to integrate that. And I think that's being kind of worked out now by a variety of things, including SNS is working on um, trying to find out from the students who interviewed this year, their thoughts, as well as the program directors. I could foresee a couple of things. One is that you can either have options for virtual interviews. If you can't make it in person due to a conflict, I could see having a first round of interviews being virtual. And then a second round when you're really serious about 10 or 12 candidates being in person, that saves cost and expense and everyone from having to fly 30 cities, et cetera, uh, you know, some people get up to that many interviews and exposes as many, re- you know, applicants as possible to as many programs and vice versa. I think that would be a nice way to go about it uh, personally. Um, I think I think that there's no question in my mind that there needs to be open season, so to speak, for sub eyes. I mean, I think people need to do those. I think they need to ex- be exposed to neurosurgery at least two months, if not more if they choose to do so is particularly the people that need to get letters um, that don't have home programs where people know them well or longitudinally over their first three years of medical school. Um, I mean, those are my thoughts. Um, I'd welcome Dr. Donnelly's as well and any you have, but that's, that's my overview. I mean, I think a lot of things are, 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 are kind of going to be rearranged because of this experience or or maybe not, but it's certainly, we have the opportunity to do.
2: Yeah. What do you think Dr. Donnelly? Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, agree with uh, Dr. Johnson's um, point. They're all smart. Uh, he's definitely much smarter than me in terms of uh, creative ideas and uh, in terms of interviews and, um, you know, like how to adapt to the uh, how to uh, utilize a virtual uh, interviews in the future. Now, I think you know the always the like the answer is always in the middle. I think I think. Uh, Personal interactions are important. You know, I think uh, seeing at least interviewing uh, future applicants in person um, is important. Having them experience what the program has to offer live is important. I agree with Dr. Johnson. You don't have to do it with, you know, you can do it in stages like the, the maybe the last batch of applicants who are, so to speak, finalists. <laughs> we will visit with the program but i think some sort of a visitation and personal interaction is important it's key i think uh plus the sub i experience is really important like these days like you have like to get i mean it's always been like this but to get an excellent uh, letter of recommendation you need to uh perform at a high level as a sub i i mean you're counting on these letters for you to match i mean the like programs value those letters more than anything else and how to get those letters is through um, doing your sub I more importantly in the in the away sub is than the home program the home program is usually so to speak a bit biased to their own uh, medical students they'll you know they'll you know definitely tend to write more favorable letters they're fair obviously say the truth but you know the true experience with an externship like with a with a with an away with an away experience and then applicant would do a great job there. They'll get the fantastic recommendation letters. Then you have two independent entities saying, this is the person, and that person's outcome will be fantastic. They'll usually match it within their top choices. So the sub-I experience, I don't think uh, there's anything that can can, um, replace that, to be honest. I think it's really important to see someone in action. I mean, these days, people take a year off. It's not that I encourage it, but they take a year off and they spend time doing, you know, research or uh, getting obtaining a different degree and spending time with a specific neurosurgical program to get excellent recommendation letters to even boost further their application to this competitive residency. So, that's why, like, personal interactions, personal experience, excellent recommendation letters, there's no replacement for those. So,
0: Dr. Dodd, I'd love to, to expand on that a little bit. So, let's say we have two uh and even for, let's limited in-person interviewing opportunities uh, or even in-person. You uh, can even say even a, in a normal year, how can students wow and get the letter of recommendation that you are describing?
2: Um, you know, many things to go about it. I mean, people talked about it and I agree with all the previous, you know, just, you know, bring in your A game and having excellent work ethic. think, First of all, you got to pair yourself with an excellent mentor that uh, a neurosurgical mentor that would, uh, you know, share his or her experience, avail their time. So pairing with a mentor is really important uh, in in this uh, uh, journey of becoming a neurosurgeon. Mentorship, it's about mentorship, it's about sharing experiences and leading you through the right path. These days, there's almost a playbook on how to get into this field, almost like, you know, you just got to check those boxes and you're in good shape. And I agree with that. Now... You need to bring in your A game, show up early, leave late, show work ethic, work well with the residents. You know, work well with the residents if you have the opportunity to do a sub-I. Um, be very helpful, um, answer when you're asked, you know, and, uh, and then try to bring something to the table, you know, in terms of work ethic, uh, stamina, um, uh, showing passion, uh, being humble, very important. Uh, and these are the basic human skills. And having high emotional intelligence, you know, you gotta, you know, you need to have a high emotional intelligence, not self-awareness and self-regulation, uh, and, and professionalism and communication skills. These are really important basic skills, but they're very important uh, during a subi, so you can get a a good letter's recommendation. So boost your CV with some research by pairing yourself with an excellent mentor who would also help you beyond. Mentoring you, tutoring on research projects, but also advice, true advice, true feedback, true critique and positive uh, um, uh, critiques, obviously, and also doing your best during your sub eye. You always want to try to choose a place where you want to match at and uh, bring in your A-game. I think and enjoy the journey, you know, don't make it stressful. And it's like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful journey. And, uh, you know, you stick it with your plan A and you'll achieve your goals. I truly totally believe in that. Don't, don't sway yourself. Don't have a plan B. Just have a plan A, stick to it and you'll achieve your goals. All right. I'm going to do it.
0: <laughs> That's very motivating. Um, Dr. Johnson, I, I didn't know if you wanted to, uh, conclude, um, with anything else that you thought was important for us to discuss. We've gone over a lot of different topics today. um, But I did not know if there was anything you wanted to, to
1: find, to finish on. Yeah, no, I I think this has been, obviously, I hate the word now because it's cliched in so many ways, the unprecedented experience that everyone's had to go through. Right. But I do think that the, the smart, you know, the smart people have adapted. And I, I, I would say that our field has has done that well, both through the interview process, um, through many, many institutions and hospitals adapting to this, departments, sorting out how to handle the residents, the students. And so I think anytime there's a shock to the system, there's opportunity for innovation and for change. Um, and and I, And I welcome that. And I think that we've seen a lot of it. And um, I look forward to kind of seeing how it continues to evolve going forward. And, uh, you know, there's like a kind of a famous Charles Darwin quote, like, uh, um, you know, the, it's not necessarily the strongest that survives, the ones that are most adaptable to change. Right. And, um, and and I think that hopefully as a field, we can come through this better in the end. And and maybe some of the things we talked about today with sort of evolving um, you know, interview process, as well as, in, you know, the boom in education, as we talked about um, virtually connecting ourselves across the globe to other neurosurgeons uh, via webinars and educational resources. I mean, I think that maybe that's the, um, the real gold that's come out of this experience.
0: That's, yeah, that, that's phenomenal. Um, I think we need to make word clouds of all these episodes. Cause I think there's some words that'll keep popping up like huge, like work ethic, adaptable, <laughs> love, passion. I mean, it's just, it's, it's being a good human being and, and just waking up every day and, and enjoying the process. Like Dr. Donnelly said. So um, Dr. Donnelly, we are so thankful for you to come and, and spend your valuable time with us. Um, we, we know you're busy and we appreciate it. Uh, your wisdom and insight. Um, especially through some of the craziness of the last year. Uh, I think people are looking for some virtual wisdom. And so we we appreciate you coming on.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic. Uh, you know, reach out, you know, I mean, I think you know, if it was not for the pandemic, maybe I wouldn't have had the opportunity to uh, meet with you and have uh, the honor to be part of this podcast. So that's uh, another silver lining for me personally. And and reach out, you know. Don't. It's, we're all in it together, you know. And right. you know, and uh, reach out. And uh, new neurosurgery, the neurosurgery community, it's really tightly knit. And uh, we're always uh, available to help, and it's it's just been uh, it's just been outstanding uh, how everyone responded to this, and this is a challenge that we are overcoming, and we will overcome, and uh, and, uh, and let's see what, what the next challenge would be. <laughs> just, yep, just yeah, just waiting waiting for
0: it. <laughs> come on, come on, come on.
2: <laughs> All right, thank you so much, guys. You're most welcome. Appreciate it.
0: Hey, if you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and check out our webpage at neurosurgerytrainingorg TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on ans.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes, or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, Our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.